Welcome back to the Behind the Well Show. Roger Abel, I finally have Elias back. He's had a had a brief break. We're filming this right before Christmas. You uh, Are you ready? Have you got your shopping done? Of course I do. My wife does it all. But what about for your wife? She buys her gift. She doesn't even tell me Come what on. she wants. Come on, dude. What's wrong with that? I mean, I bought a gift for myself this year and gave it to my wife to wrap. Yeah, that's what that's what uh, Maddie does. She just she gets a gift and that's what I'm giving her. So, yeah, I actually buy Megan all her gifts. I pick them all out. I usually try to get the girls involved at some level to do it. It's a good idea. Yeah, maybe would, you're. Are you up for husband of the year this year? You should be. <laughs> Never. Um, <laughs> with that said, you know. Um, I always kind of wonder, like, how much do people spend on Christmas? Because I think every family's different, like, how they do this. I know some families, you know, they exchange gifts with all of their family members and aunts and uncles and cousins and all these people. I mean, I don't know. Do you guys, like, set a budget for Christmas? Just buy the gifts? What do you guys do? I So we do sinking fund for you Christmas do? budget. So Maddie knows how much she wants every year for that. And it's just a weekly deposit to a savings account. Um, and then there's a couple white elephant gift exchanges with family. So white elephant gift exchanges, you buy something that either someone's going to want or everyone's going to think it's funny or someone wants to get rid of it. And then they'll set a, a price limit on that. That's Those are pretty fun, but, you know, you always – the you always, there's just always some terrible, terrible gifts in the white elephant exchange. And like, what makes it fun is when there's a bunch of good stuff that people want to steal. One item can only be stolen uh, twice or something. There's some rules to it. So, so that's pretty fun, but I don't personally, I could have Christmas and not have any gifts and I would just, I'd be just as happy without them as I am with them. Yeah. We, um, we don't exchange gifts with our parents anymore. We give just the kids gifts, the nieces and nephews and our kids and Megan and I do it just to make sure that, you know, the, the kids see that, hey, we're part of Christmas, but we stopped doing the the gifts to brothers and sisters and moms and dads long ago. We're all to the point where if we want it, we can just go buy it. And uh, I think everybody gets busy with the family, but it's all each to their own, you know, how, how they actually do that. But this is always fun time of year to watch the kids and. Yeah. They watch the packages under the tree, and I saw there was a corner peeled up on one the other day. So I'm sure someone was trying to get a peek of what's what's underneath that packet, you know, like the corner of the package was peeled up. Uh, yeah, I have a heart. I never remember what people want or how to get them stuff, but my sister-in-law, she's like the greatest you can say, hey, I'm. what should I get so-and-so for Christmas? And she'll be like, well, back in June – they mentioned that they would like to have one of these and they still don't. And I'm like, how do you ever, but every year she's just Johnny on the spot for Christmas gift information. Well, so here's what I've done. As soon as my wife tells me she wants something. You just go buy it. Instantly. Instantly. One of her hmm. gifts, she told That's me realistic. within three minutes, it was already ordered because I'll forget it. But then she's actually surprised that I remembered but I've actually like had when that do you gift. have this conversation just at night. She's like, man, I really like these boots or I want like for we were in Des Moines and they were uh, we were some friends and they went to this little boutique and there was this ring she wanted. She wanted it for Mother's Day. Well, I'd already bought some, so I didn't get it. 
but I had it. I bought it right after for her birthday. So I sat on this thing for like five months. But the good news was she was really surprised. Like, cause she had, she's like, well, I didn't get it for Mother's Day. I'm probably not going to get it. Husband uh, of the year. But you should be up for that award. Eliza's taking me 20 years to figure it out. As soon as somebody tells me what they want, even with the girls, like if the girls tell us, hey, I really want this and we're not just going to buy it randomly. We'll order it and put it aside and wrap it and have it ready for Christmas. Because otherwise we forget and they forget and everybody always likes like the gift they forgot about. Yep, they do. So I was reading an article, National Retail Federation put out that those celebrating Christmas and other winter holidays expect to spend $875 on average on gifts, decorations, food, and other key seasonal items. You think you're going to spend more than 875? Oh, for sure. I'm going to spend I think I'll spend that on food. Yeah, I I don't know what the Christmas budget actually is, but yeah, it'll be we'll spend more than that between yeah, just food. Well, I don't know if our food bill will get there cuz we're bringing dishes to the different parties we're going to, but I'm sure the gift bill is higher than that. Are you going to in-law so we're hosting one of my my in-laws at our house and their family. So that's why my food bill will be be that I we do I make oyster stew every year and you know just go order order oysters and you're you're going to spend almost that. Yeah, yeah. Um no, we don't host. My in-laws host. Yeah, I think I don't I don't know how you can spend less on Christmas this year than you did last year. You know, the big the big painful i words been poking everyone in the eye, inflation. So like how are you going to spend spend less now? Well, I mean fortunately it's not as much as, I mean, inflation's cooling off. The Fed just had their meeting yesterday, and, you know, all signs point to potentially lower interest rates in the future, which I think is ironic. And um, we'll have to cover another show. On, on the radio show the other night, I, I had a graphic of from the last rate cut, what did the market do six months later and then 12 months later? What do you think the market performance is, up or down, percentage-wise, six months after the last rate cut and then 12 months stock market performance. Yeah. Cause I think it's after what cut. people actually think after the, after the well, last now you rate said hike, that it's probably down after, six months later. 50, I would expect it's, up. It's actually a coin flip half. Yeah. Half the time. It's like 44% of the time the market's down. I think I, I could pull the chart. Molly has a chart on it, but I was actually kind of surprised because most people see interest rates Going down is a good sign. Well, what's already happened? We've already run up a bunch, so it's going to be hard uh, hard for it to be down over six months if the last hike was, what, October or November? That's going to be hard for the market to be down since then. Um, but I think people start to feel the easing on their, their pocketbook, like, oh, man, maybe rates are going down if they're borrowing or they, you know, if they have a home. I know a good friend of mine is a banker. He's like, I'm going to be busy next October. You know, because he's, you know, if rates come down, they'll be doing a bunch of refis and the people that had to borrow at six, seven, five and seven, seven and a half, eight percent. Got to refinance them. We'll see what that does. That could be that could be the next uh, the next leg of inflation if rates drastically drop. I think there's a lot of people that own homes that want new homes but aren't willing to give up their rate. I saw a statistic. It was yesterday, the day before. 
60% of all mortgages are under 4%. That's got to be high. That's, that's, a, that's a high number, number for that statistic, right? I mean, under four. So if you think about it, somebody wanting to move out of their house, they're going from, let's call it three to seven. Like it's probably double the payment. It's buying yeah, you like limit, 40% less. Limits what you can buy. Yeah. So think about the people that bought their starter home and they want to move up. Well, they can't now because the house price is up 40%. Interest rates are double. They can't move up. So there's all these people just on the sideline waiting. So they're not giving up this interest rate. What's going to happen if rates come down in the fours and fives? Is it going to be like this frenzy? Like, oh my gosh, I got to make the move now. Yeah, I, I could actually, well, yeah, I could see that helping the inventory and real estate. Well, I don't think it'll help the inventory. I think it'll make it worse. Because if, remember, but if person, rates go down, don't you think more people would be willing to sell? Yes, but that means they're also going to buy. And there's already, yeah, and there's already high demand for buyers. There's already so just high bring, demand. Yeah, it doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't really help. You're going to have to get a situation where there's just a lot more sellers than buyers, and I don't know how we actually get to that, especially if rates go down. Like, yeah, I know all kinds of people who would go to a new place, but they don't want to give up their two point seven five percent interest rate. Yeah, I made a I made a life decision the other day. I'm not selling my house ever. I'm staying. Well, my wife want, wants to build a new house, and I think I've convinced her to keep this one and just get another house somewhere else just so I can really keep my super low interest rate. That's a good idea. She liked I, just, I was grilling. I was grilling. We were making cheeseburgers for dinner, and I was standing on my deck, and I just thought, why would I leave? Why would I leave here? It's great here. What is the, what, what would I go to that I could have? There's nothing else I want. Yeah, then you got the place. I mean, I guess I would like to have probably one more bedroom and an office, but I don't have to sell my house and go buy another one. It's to, an addition? Yeah, we can do an addition. Well, you have a huge lot, so you can do whatever you want to do out there. Yeah, I could tear I could tear my house down and build a house right where we're at. I wouldn't do that, but I was just, last night I'm thinking, I'm crazy for even thinking about going somewhere else. Because if I move, I'm not moving, I'm not moving away. Here's I'm going to move to a different town. Like I'm going to move within 30 miles of where I live now. Well, how does that change anything? No, see, it's working. What's working? Higher interest rates are working because I'm going to throw this out there. If you were able to go move from your place now, that would, let's just say you bought double the value. Okay. So if you had a $300,000 place, you're buying a $600,000 place. And I don't know what your place is worth. So this is just hypothetical. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And let's say you had an interest rate of, let me do the math on this. You own a half a million dollar place, which I know you don't, but let's just assume you did. Okay. okay. And only because I know the numbers on this. Yeah. Yeah. The principal okay. and interest on 500,000 at an interest rate about 3%. Well, since it's hypothetical, can my house be a million dollars? It's going to be a million. Just okay. wait. Okay. <laughs> so hypothetically, you got a half a million dollar house, Elias. Yeah. And you have an interest rate of, let's call it 2.75. Your principal and interest on a 30-year note, 2.75% interest, 500000 is about 2100 bucks a month. At 500 Yeah. Okay. Okay. So arguably, if you were able to say, hey, look, um, I want to buy a new house, but now I can afford this million-dollar house and, it's, and your income had doubled, right? 
well, I could, it's only two grand more. Like I could afford $4,000 a month for my principal and interest. Here's why you don't want to move. <laughs> this is, so this is the reason I don't want to move or this is the math? This is the math. Of why the I shouldn't move. Subconsciously. Well, subcon. I yeah, I guess. I mean, that's I why just, it is. You don't want to spend the extra money, just like me. But what what would I? But then I ask myself: If I do spend the extra money, what am I getting? What enjoyment. is going? What? But what enjoyment? All right. So I already enjoy. I I enjoy what I have. So why am I, I going to break some? I know. I'm just saying. Not I, I think this is how people are thinking, though. Yeah, the, yeah. I really okay, think this so is what how is people it? are thinking. Okay. So if you had a half a million dollar place. Your principal interest is about two twenty one hundred a month, right? Okay. So if you double that, your principal and interest would be forty two. Forty two hundred. If you if you still had your two point seven five percent rate. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what the payment is on a million dollar place at seven percent? No, I don't. Six thousand six hundred and fifty three dollars. Yes, yeah, almost triple it's triple. Yeah. So I think subconsciously, whether you're doing it, but I think people in general are doing that. They're like, well, I'm spending I'm getting twice the house. But the payments triple the money and it's not really twice the house. It's probably like slightly better okay. than where you are. Yes, yes. I agree with that, because if we sold our house, we'd probably want to build one. Well, to build one of equivalent size, you know, with we have a patio, we have a deck, we have a sunroom, pool. we have a pool. It's above ground pool, so it's cheaper than in ground pool. But it's going to be, I don't know if double what the house is worth, but in the ballpark of that, it's certainly going to be more than double what we what we owe on it. Our house is appreciated in value a lot because so we bought a fixer upper and we've done the major projects. So... But that's what people. Yeah, but that yes, you're right. So like, yeah, from a finance perspective, yes, I don't see how I now if I could get out of what I have and get anything I could want. Well, then maybe, but that's not the situation. So to leave what I have to pay more for the same exact thing, yeah, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, so that's that's what I'm thinking is people subconsciously haven't come to grips with. I'm gonna get a little bit nicer house for three times the money. Okay, so that yeah, so that's like, the math that's on it. it but I'm my story is gonna stay. I just really enjoy grilling on my deck, and I don't want to leave. It's funny you say that though, because like we're in a great. You've been in my house, and we're in a neighborhood with all these little kids. And if it was just my wife and I, we wouldn't. We'd go live in the woods and be private and all that stuff. It's pretty nice to have all the friends in the neighborhood knocking on the door and my kids are entertained and they summertime the summertime they leave at like 8 30 in the morning there's days they'll come back at like six o'clock like, so we do not yeah we do not day. have that in our neighbor our neighborhood is out of town the development everyone has a big yard but it's out of town there's only a couple other families that have young kids so that that is one thing with a young family we are missing because then what happens is like we just end, we end up outside playing with them or taking them to the park. It would be great to just oh yeah go to so and so's so and so wants you to come over go sounds great. We don't have that though. Yeah, so that's one of the so things. Maybe keeping that us maybe from, that maybe that upgrade would be worth it. I don't know. That's keeping us in a neighborhood because I mean, 
It's probably it's under, the best reason to live in a neighborhood. And my, un, like, if you don't have kids, I don't see why I'd want to live in a neighborhood. That's the only reason I want to live in a neighborhood. It's undervalued. The kids in the neighborhood and the right mix of kids, like all the kids in our neighborhood are like of similar age to my kids. Oh, so and it's, it's mostly And it's mostly girls. Right. So it'd be one thing if it was like, I have two daughters and there's all boys. It's mostly girls in the neighborhood. And there's probably like, five or six little neighborhood girls and they're in our driveway, the neighbor's driveway or across the street all the time. So last week um, or a couple episodes ago, we, we did a show and just answered some of the most asked questions on, on the internet. And I thought today we just kind of talk about a few of those in depth a little bit more because people are still looking up some of these things when it comes to money and investing. And I think one thing that's really um, misunderstood lies is this life insurance. People just think this is a tool if you die, which that's what it is, right? But a lot of people don't understand the mechanics of it. And I was, uh, I did a show with Casey. Casey and I did a couple of state planning shows. And everybody always asked me, you know, is life insurance taxable? How does the taxation of insurance work? And if you ask most life insurance agents, they're going to tell you life insurance is tax-free benefit. Yeah, and it is. Family. Yeah. It is from an income tax standpoint. So one of the misunderstood things about life insurance is it's not necessarily federally estate tax-free. So if you have a large life insurance policy, is so it always tax-free for named beneficiary? Income tax-free, but not federally tax-free. Okay. Federal estate tax free. So let me just put a scenario out there. Right now we've we've got you're a single individual, and your um, your exemption's eleven million bucks. I'm using a round number, and you own real estate and all kinds of stuff. You have a ten million dollar estate, so right now it's not taxable. You're under the eleven million, and you have a five million dollar life insurance policy that you own with beneficiaries. That now makes your estate fifteen million dollars, and now everything's taxable at the you know that that additional four million dollars, that's all federally estate taxable. So the insurance is tax free federally. Sounds like or a I good mean, problem to have. But point is, people just automatically assume. I mean, we have clients that have big life insurance policies. Yeah, could that be detrimental to them in the future? Potentially, if they don't have it structured right, if they have a net enough assets. You know, fortunately, we've structured them right, so it's not going to be a tax time bomb for them. But the stuff that people just don't don't think about it. No, I mean, everybody always asks, "Is insurance worth it?" I mean, what do you think? Is is life is insurance in, worth having? So, for the vast majority of people, yes, there is some. Typically, you can identify some risk that you can take off the table with life insurance. In general, for Younger families like mine, I carry life insurance as income replacement. If I get hit by a bus, something happens to me and I die, right? My family just, they don't, they need the money to replace my income. So I just, for younger families, I view it through that lens. There's probably, there's an argument to be made for different estate planning situations too, Um but yes, absolutely. It, it's worth it. I mean, if you if you don't have it, 
right? Like, let's say I was going without, I'm just not going to ensure my risks that I could die. It's a very low risk, but anything could happen. And then something happens to me Well, I have a mortgage and now we have a salary that's not in the house anymore. And uh, there's three kids that need school and they need clothes and they need food. Um, so, yes, I, I think it's worth it. I think there's a lot of you get to a point where you probably don't need it anymore. But for any working people with young families, worth it. You got to pay the premiums and have it. I've uh, I've always used the analogy or I guess saying that. The insurance for most families is the self-completing portion of the financial plan. Yeah, it's kind of like the big. It's kind of like the big umbrella that just protects the whole thing. Well, right? think about it. If we lay this financial plan out, what are the assumptions we're making? How much money you have? How much you're earning? And what are the future contributions going to be to get you to retirement? Yeah, and it assumes you're living until ninety some years old. Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, let's be honest. The the risk for people getting to retirement isn't as much once they're there because those are controllable factors, spending and asset allocation. It's getting them out saved to get there. So if you're a husband and wife and you sat back and said, you know what? You know, yep, we're going to live to be 95 years old. Your financial plan assumes you make full contributions to your 401k at whatever your current percentage is for the next X amount of years. Well, if you die tomorrow, guess what happens? It's those done. Gone. Yeah. It's done. So that's why I call it the self-completing portion. It completes all those future. It's basically the present value of the future payments into the 401k, right? Because it's really what it is. And it helps cover all the bills and replaces your check and all, all the different things involved. It's one of the more, most important things young, young families can have. And yeah, it's worth it. You know, it's like, it's like you're building your dream home without pouring a foundation. Yeah, I mean, every, seriously, that's what right. not having life insurance for your young family is like building a house without a foundation. I agree with that. And um, a lot and everyone insures their house, right? I mean, I think like, if that can. I mean, yeah. I, I'm guessing there's people in Florida that can't, but most people that can sure do. Well, right. But and the yes, bank requires it, it. Right. And it. I guess I guess if you're, you know, if your house is paid off, technically you wouldn't have to insure it. I think I still would yeah it's so I, I heard an analogy once or something like you know people people insure their house look around your neighborhood how many houses have been destroyed to the ground burnt to the ground been destroyed in a storm like where it's just totally gone not many every single person dies at some point right the stati statistically if you're good health you're gonna live a long time but you never know. You just never know what could happen. Well, it kind of brings up the next question that's been out there. And I've, I've watched on social media so many videos about this. And my opinion is, no, it's not. But the question I'm going to pose is, is buying life insurance a good investment? So you want me to answer? Well, I'll take it first and I'll let you talk. So I think it's a good investment from the standpoint of, being able to pay off the debts for your family and self-complete your financial plan. I don't think it's a good investment if you're buying it for cash value or return on the cash value or any of those reasons, which is how a lot of this is sold. Yeah, right. I, so I'm I looking at investment that. from two standpoints, a protection, which is the death benefit and the cash value, which is what people will refer to as an investment. 
What do you feel? I mean, an investment feel, in air quotes. Well, yeah, because it's not an investment. You don't invest yeah. extra money into your. You don't invest extra money into your homeowner's insurance to get an attached to buy a attached interest rate. Like, why would you do that? No, you buy insurance I, for insurance. You invest to invest. I think that's the lens to view it. Insurance is for managing risk, investing, certainly at the age of accumulation, investing is, is doing that, buying assets to grow your net worth. I don't, and I don't, what I, there's all the, these concepts in life insurance, like power zero and all this stuff. And it's just a bunch of, it, it just doesn't really work out. It, it works out for the insurance companies. So the bit, you know, there's a lot of really, really, really rich businesses that write permanent life insurance policies for well, people. Okay. You gotta break permanent insurance into two categories, cash value and asset transfer. Yeah. Right. I mean, because there are cases where a permanent insurance policy is very meaningful in financial planning to either protect like a pension if someone took a higher pension payout they would potentially buy insurance to offset that risk of not leaving a not leaving like half of the or not leaving the um the pension payment to a spouse yeah correct i pension meant to max. say cash value no no not cash value but or you know you have a good example of the person who has a 15 million dollar estate they might buy some permanent insurance and put it in a irrevocable life insurance trust so it remains federally estate tax free to offset future taxes that are going to be owed on that estate to make it whole. So there's planning tools, but none of that has to do with I'm going to buy this insurance policy to have cash value that I'm going to borrow against in the future to live. Elias, a lot of times I I know you're on YouTube, but I'm on YouTube a lot. My my girls the other day, they go, Dad, why do you get to watch YouTube, but we don't? I said, well, when you're moms, you can watch YouTube whenever you want. As much YouTube as you can handle. When <laughs> but my daughters, because we limit, they get one hour a day of YouTube and that's it. So they get mad when I get to watch YouTube and they don't. But um, I always see uh, videos out there. How much money should I have by a certain age, right? They all, Everybody wants to benchmark themselves against everybody else, which truth be told, it's completely irrelevant. Like how much money you need to have is really a subject of your circumstances, your goals and priorities and where you want to go. But I saw one a guy came out and said, how much money should I have saved by 25? What would you tell him? By 25? Yeah. I tell him it, it, the, the amount you have is irrelevant. You yeah. should be focusing. If you want to be successful with money, you should just focus on the things that you should do on a daily, weekly basis, monthly basis, however makes sense to you to be successful with money. You know, there's not most 25 year olds. If you went to college, you've only been working for a few years. If you started, even if you didn't go to school and you started working right after you graduated high school. So you've been working seven years, like how much money could you possibly have by 25 years old? I'm sure there's exceptions out there that have become wildly successful by that age, but for the most part, you're still getting started. So it's, I, I think habits are way more important than an amount that, that you should have saved. Now, should you be, should you be saving? Yes. If it's, dude, if it's 20 bucks a week, then great. You're doing something. You're started. You can increase that over time. I don't know what percentage of every, you know, 
I want to know the percentage of the income that would be, but do something. That's that's typically what, what I talk with people about. Let's just get started. It doesn't, the percentage really doesn't matter that much. Yeah, I think um, that's the advice I give. 25 doesn't matter. I, I don't think um, it really matters for anybody how much somebody else has. It doesn't, I mean. No, actually, you know, so Charlie Munger, he recently passed, and I watched some videos on him, and one of, I think one of the most interesting, one of his most interesting takes, he said that envy is one of the most probably negative things in society today. And then he kind of prefaces comments because he's in his 90s when he's saying this. You know, he's like, I lived through the Great Depression and I don't know what metrics he was using, but he was saying people are 600% better off today. That's probably some sort of measure of just like personal net worth or something on an average. And he goes, people are 600% better today, but everyone's so busy comparing what they have to the next person instead of just enjoying the fact that in general – Living in America, you're 600% better off now than you were 50 and 60 years ago. Yeah, it, it's we don't do a good job of putting in perspective what we all have here. And I think that's part of just our culture. Our culture is more and more and more and more and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, so, I'm, it, so really it goes is. back to what I was saying earlier. I'm just going to stay where I'm at because I enjoy it and I appreciate it. You're, you're, we're going to call wanna, it the Charlie Munger move? Yeah, all and right. I want to be... Grilling, I'm going to be grilling on that deck for the next, how old am I, 35? Okay, 70 years, 105. Okay, so I got to talk about a video I saw. I was watching TikTok, and you tell me what you think about this, and I'll okay. tell you what I think. It was like, and this guy buys everything with a credit card, but it was like a credit card point strategy. Like, well, if you do this card and you sign up, you get these points, and it's all about getting points and rewards. So I was... After I, I watched this video, you know, it has comments on it. And the person's like, so I should pay everything with a credit card. Like, Who said that? Just a random A person. random comment? Yeah, oh. random comments. Like, well, does that mean I should pay everything with a credit card? You know, because they view these points and these perks and these bonuses as, like, profitable. It sounds like a lot of work to not make very much money. Well, actually, they're Just gonna, on surface value. They're, they're going to lose money, right? Well, if you carry the balance, yeah. How many? What's the? How many people pay a balance off? I mean, what's the statistics on it? <laughs> Not many. All right. So I just Elias, while we're sitting here, I pulled it up. Lending in two thousand two, Lending Tree did a survey, found only thirty five percent of cardholders paid their balance each month. That's actually higher than what I would have guessed. That's I about actually a third. think so too. But you know what? That takes into account the person who literally has like one thing going that credit card, like they have their utility bill. Yeah. I mean, like, me, you know, I live in Marion. My utility bill goes to my credit card, not my debit card. My credit, I don't like to get my, they wanted the number over the phone. I'm not really, I'll yeah, give you the credit card. I don't do that. But that gets paid every month. 65% um, of people carry a balance. So just that advice in general of, hey, let's go out and take out a bunch of credit cards to get points. It's just the worst advice. How do you manage it all? They're, someone's going to have a late payment eventually. It's going to kill their credit. If you have how like many credit, credit how many credit cards are we talking? Like I don't. Oh, would, dude, this guy had like a wallet of them, literally like seven or eight. And then they were talking about how they got to the black status, and you know that it's all about status. Have so many points, they spent so much money. I'm like, well, that's great, but wouldn't it have just been easier to 
have one card if you're going to use it and just pay it I off know, versus then you, multiple. You're not maximizing your points and you're not maximizing your benefits. Yeah, you're I maximizing don't know. I don't your future know. loss because all it's going to take I is one problem that you can't pay it and all the points and stuff you've accumulated completely negated because you're going to carry a balance for three months and you paid it all back in interest. Yeah, I I wouldn't even know how to do. I to me that just sounds like I'm going to spend a lot of effort on jostling around credit cards and okay, so you get some points. Like I know we one one card we use, you just all you get is 2% cash back and we've never used that money for anything other than helping pay the bill. It's just like a basically a credit on the bill, which it's nice when it builds up to something that's decent, but I have a United card, like rewards card. Yeah. For which, airlines, which stuff. is the worst one to have out of our airport. It only goes direct two places. And my wife's like, we should switch. I'm like, nah, I'm, I'm good. I have 400,000 points accumulated because I don't ever use them. So the points are irrelevant, <laughs> but she's like, we should switch because she wants to fly American. I'm like, I not getting a different car because you want to fly American. Like, we'll just fly American and use the United card to pay for it. Like, I don't see the, I personally don't see the points as a benefit. No. I mean, I never use them. So, um, so I just, I just, that got me, every time I watch those videos, it just gets me thinking like, man, this is just crappy advice that people are giving out on social media. I mean, some of this stuff is just off the wall. Yeah, it's bizarre. I saw one where if you sign up for these three different credit cards and then you do this next thing you know you're going to have access to three hundred thousand dollars oh yeah to start a business to start a business interest interest free for 12 months well dude if you're going to borrow money to start a business just borrow it from the bank like don't which credit card companies are banks but really you're going to rack up three hundred thousand and you're going to owe all that back interest because you don't get it paid off in 12 months oh no that person's going to go bankrupt yeah, that's you, not, you know why they're going to go bankrupt? We're not going to be able to keep up with the payments. Well, how much money were they able to get? Three hundred thousand. Three hundred. Okay. And I don't well, understand how that works. How do you just all of a sudden get three hundred thousand? It's clearly click. It's clearly clickbait. But just think about this for a minute. Ninety-two percent of all small businesses fail. So not only is this person going to that does this likely fail, they're also going to owe three hundred thousand dollars in credit card debt at 26% a year. So the person who does that, they're actually filing bankruptcy. Yeah, sounds fun. There's a highly high likelihood. Um, so here's the last, the last one I'm gonna pose to you. And I think this has changed a lot over the last 36 months. And I had actually an individual ask me this, Elias, um, recently, and they work at an employer and they have the option to, they have a pension, which, you know, there's not many left today but they work an employer that has a pension and they have the option to either do a lump sum rollover or take the pension payment. And I always tell people, number one, you had to model this through a financial plan, but you also have to see what's the break even on the pension payment, right? Like if you're getting X amount of dollars, how many years does it take you to just get your own money back? And what's actually changed a lot in 36 months, and I don't think people understand this, that lump sum benefit that they're offering you is actually tied to interest rates. So as interest a lot more people understand that now because all their ben the 
lump sum amounts went down. So I I've know they're talking about it. I've seen lump sum benefit go down $100,000. Yeah, it can be a lot. So think about it. As, as interest rates go up, your lump sum benefit goes down because they don't, it's just actuarially how it works. So three, four years ago, there were a couple employers that most of the time people are like, I'm going to take the lump sum because I'm way better off. Today, you should put some thought behind whether you're going to do a lump sum or you're going to take the monthly benefit. Because yeah. it's getting much more attractive to actually just start taking that monthly benefit, having that, you know, guaranteed income stream versus trying to create it yourself. I've actually heard of uh, or know of some people who just they decided to retire because they knew what that pension lump sum amount was going to go down. And there's some local employers that have like large lump sum pensions and it can I be mean, a $200,000 difference. A so then they bucks. look at it and they go. Okay, well, I'll just roll this out two hundred thousand. They're like, that's a year and a half of work or whatever it is, right? Well, they're rolling it and they're get, getting the opportunity to buy. You know, they probably can create the income stream, but if the the money goes down much further, they're not going to be able to recreate that income stream they had in that pension. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought that was a good one that people really don't actually nobody understand. Well, I won't say nobody, but very few consumers or retail investors understand how that lump sum benefit is calculated. And I think when you just think of it as the opposite of what interest rates are doing, meaning if interest rates go up, your benefit goes down, rates go down, your benefit goes up. That That's something good that everybody could take away if they still have a pension. And I mean, that's a big decision. Like deciding to Absolutely take is. a lump sum versus a monthly benefit, it's a big decision. Yeah. It's irrevocable. Yeah. So it dep It really depends on the person, how they view that source of income, what they want it to do for them. And it is a big decision because there's no unwinding. Once the pensions turn, once the monthly benefits turned on, it's on. And then after the lump sum's done, they won't take it back. So it, it, it's a bigger, it it's is a big decision. If you have yeah, if you have that opportunity, it's a big decision that you got to make. Well, with that said, I want to thank everybody for listening or watching. If you do that, if you're watching the show, please hit the subscribe button. If you want to get more content like this, you can follow us at btwellshow.com. We're on Facebook, X, LinkedIn, YouTube, and all the major podcast platforms. I uh, hope everybody has a great Christmas. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening and watching. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor, member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. This information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax advice. We suggest that you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax advisor. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. 
The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks including possible loss of principal. Dollar cost averaging involves continuous investment in securities. Regardless of fluctuation in price levels of such securities, an investor should consider their ability to continue purchasing through fluctuating price levels. Such a plan does not assure profit and does not protect against loss.